the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before I introduce our guests today, do you want to throw out that I have a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H? Consider throwing me a buck if you're enjoying the content that we've been putting out. Today's guest is Taylor Atkins, translator of Francois Leroy's Philosophy and Non-Philosophy. Today we're picking up where we left off in part one, which is sort of setting the table. We're still sort of tilling the ground set in the preface and introduction. And then after this episode, we will uh, definitely be delving hardcore into into the text. So here is the conversation Taylor and I had surrounding the preface and introduction. What was the thing that got you into La Ruelle to begin with? Because I think you're you're the only person that I've ever heard mention La Ruelle at ever. Oh, uh, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah uh yeah i mean so there's a there's a few things with i guess what brought me to laura well i i remember probably 2006 2007 and um this was back when i was a baby i was you know 21 and i was doing a philosophy degree undergrad was in english or philosophy or so, I, so so yeah when i was when i was 16 a uh, university of west georgia over in Carrollton. it has a uh, it has a program and it was called the advanced academy which is, you know, we always made, I always made catamite jokes. So the advanced uh, academite, um, which, is, which is funny, you know, just because I'm about to talk about Deleuze and buggery and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, he, so I did that first. So I, uh, I got my English degree when I was 18 and, um, you know, I kind of, I did a kind of like super overload uh, on some English stuff. They had really happy to work with the faculty there. They had some really great teachers. And one of, one of the teachers, he taught creative writing. And in fact, he had just been hired by the, the program. His name is uh, Gary Snyder. And I believe he still teaches and he's got wonderful books of poetry out there too. Um, but he really had a, like a very intuitive way of teaching critical theory, which is, it's called practical criticism. That's the junior level class that, that basically says, okay, you're going to take this for the, the English major. You have to, you have to start, you have to learn not just about the history of like literary criticism, uh, especially in the 20th century. Um, and, and obviously do higher level fine readings and close readings and all that. But, yeah. but, but you have to, you get exposed to Derrida, right? So he right. had a really, he had a really firm grasp on, on deconstruction. Uh, I believe he did his, you know, he must've got it. I think he got his PhD in the, maybe in the early nineties and stuff. So, you know, in that, 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 that milieu was still super, um, especially English departments and literature yeah. departments. I mean, they are the ones that I think were much more receptive and, and much right. quicker to, to receive. Yeah. Uh, Foucault. So we, we, we did some Foucault and he also had, I think his strongest background was in disability theory. So I, I got to do some, some of that stuff for my senior thesis with him. 
But obviously, we 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 did some Derrida uh, of Gravitology, which you know, Spivox got that sprawling, really interesting. I say it really interesting for someone who's like never been exposed. It was very helpful that seventy page intro, you know, on where you get kind of a crash course and and like Nietzsche and Heidegger and Freud and the you know metaphysics of presence, right? It's like yeah. that's like the remedial course for the lay person and. Um, might not be a bad idea to take a look at that or like oh sure post that in the show notes too oh yeah that'd be great though yeah i feel like that's going to definitely be relevant obviously as much as laurel's responding to to derrida with deconstruction and then like the heideggerian uh, roots of 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 derrida but also like i think i'm interested in this question of like being contra becoming yeah um, yeah, well, it, yeah. I feel I mean, like obviously, like as a kind of lay, you know, roughly lay person. So I feel like becoming is the Deleuzian. It's the Deleuzian sort of. It's the cutting edge of visualize it as a piece of paper that's on fire, <laughs> oh, like that. That, that sort of edge where the fire, the the right. paper is getting sort of consumed. That's like becoming, and I see that as well as maybe I'm. And you could correct me here if I'm if I'm going just totally off. No, I love the image. Go on. Yeah, I feel like this image is also like I feel perhaps that eminence, the plane of eminence, and becoming are unified, and there's a certain unity. Or for some reason, picture those two things together, and I I visualize it as a piece of paper that's burning on the edge. So it's it's not necessarily on fire, but it's like you know when you have that little you know you just get that little ribbon of of heat at the end that sort right. of cons- consumes the paper. And I feel like that's what I envision when I'm thinking of like eminence and becoming. Right. You know, um, I think becoming, uh, in terms of, obviously fire is is the proper uh, primordial right. element. I mean, we, we talked about it last time with a little bit with the pre-Socratics. Um, you know, Heraclitus yeah, is obviously yeah, yeah. the great thinker of, of becoming. And for right. him, that's why primordial element is fire because it is yeah it's that embodies change right it's that immediacy that we talked about too i think in the last episode like that and that's what i visualize is that like immediate like there's a whatever is happening is is at this particular moment and i don't know necessarily how to contrast that with with being which i think is definitely like that's to me that feels like obviously that's a nod towards derrida heidegger etc because that was but also Heidegger's primary focus, yeah. right, was like saying, okay, like heretofore, the history of philosophy has sort of taken being as an assumption or like an understood, like it hasn't really delved into into being. Right, as asked the question of being the the, right. the, the phenomenological question was forgotten, yeah. that question. And, and so, I mean, this is where Heidegger is, at least in his... In the terminology and conceptualization that goes into that terminology, there's something very unique about him. So the elaboration of Dasein or, or being there, whatever that you know, Heidegger is. This is why I think there are these. There's a kind. Of, I mean, I'm not. I'm not a huge Heidegger stand, but there are some. There are some cool little like. Yeah. Uh, the the in the 70s. Uh, I have to look up his name later. I think his name is Dreyfus. He's one of them. Uh, there's another guy, but they, there's some interesting like cybernetic applications of, uh, of Heidegger and being in the world oh, and the, oh, that, that kind good. of, and, and so Dasein gets kind of taken as, as crystallizing and, and almost like the, one of the like most direct ways I'll say uh, this notion of embodiment, this notion of, of, of perceptual worlds of all yeah. kinds of different worlds were enfolded into and, and, 
and that's kind of maybe how Deleuze would say it. Like, you know, there's, I always found, for example, Heidegger and, and Bergson very similar on the question of negation. And Deleuze lays it out very beautifully in Bergsonism, um, where he's like, for Bergson, you know, it's really when things don't work as we expect that like negation comes to the forefront. So you turn the keys and the, and the engine won't start. So that's when you have a kind of a presence of an absence or whatever you want, however you want to phrase it. And Heidegger is, is, is very kind of similar about this too. That it's, it's kind of like when there is something that takes us out of our everydayness and kind of throws us into a situation. That's when we're, we're faced with the dialectic of, or like dialectic of being in nothingness, you know, because for you think about becoming, you know, Hegel would probably phrase it. It's the most primordial. It's the most quote unquote immediate mediation. Becoming is right because it, it begins with the. It's it's the movement of the moments of being in nothingness. Yeah, and Spivak's introduction was was great and it was kind of a crash course. But that was that only like set me on the precipice. Um, and obviously there was other stuff. There was I had to read some Freud. That I got this huge. It's really great little Norton anthology of theory and criticism i believe that's what it's called it's um it's got all kinds of great selections going throughout and it and it follows a chronological order it also has like middle-aged stuff like dunscotus and like some some like some of that cool medieval semiotics you'll 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 Ooh. see every now and then i totally recommend that for people thinking about getting into um, theory more seriously i i believe there's several editions in any case yeah so i kind of that became my like little crash course and that next semester I took a philosophy class for the for the first time and it was um it was an existentialism class. So it begun with it started with kind of Kierkegaard and worked through Sartre Camus, um and it, we did a little bit of Nietzsche, a little bit of Heidegger. And since she was a hostile scholar, we actually did a little bit of hostile, which which was fine because it certain pieces of it were more digestible than others. I mean sometimes it can be really difficult. And Daredog too is very indebted to hostile and also why he's yeah. You know, as we, we said last time, he's, he's always, he's, he's playing games, he's laying traps, but he's also this master of discourses and generic and distinctions of genre. And so his, he's able to take the writing that philosophy equips itself with to articulate its ideas. He really does push those conventions and play with them, at least in a certain period of his you know, earlier. Derrida obviously is much more experimental in that way, but he kind of retains that in his thinking, I guess, throughout his life. So yeah, I did the I did the, the English degree, got got my feet wet in theory. I went to I went to grad school for a year in Iowa and um, you know, got deeper into into reading philosophy and got exposed to people like Zizek and um, and Stuart Hall and you know, I can name a bunch of other other thinkers, but it was it was after that year when I was coming back, um, before I went to pursue my philosophy degree, I was just kind of looking at what were some of the, who were some of the thinkers that were kind of on the horizon. I, I really enjoyed the the 20th century French philosophy stuff that Derrida. Yeah. I mean, obviously. Uh, yeah. So, our... <laughs> so, so, so reading more about Derrida and I was looking at the head of the philosophy department at George College State University, where I went to get my, my second bachelor's in philosophy. I saw that he uh, studied in Germany under Mueller Lauder, and he had written books on Nietzsche, which, you know, when I read Beyond Good and Evil in the existentialism class, that kind of sealed my fate. Yeah. yeah I, gave you the fever, huh? Yeah. So, so his, his most recent book, as I saw, was 
I'll have to look it up later. I'll, I'll look it up. Uh, we can put it in the show notes. His name is James Winchester, and he wrote um, he wrote a book about you know basically about the the 20th century Nietzsche, the main like thinkers reading him. I mean, he I know he mentions Bodhiism section on him, but his main chapters were on Derrida, Heidegger, and Deleuze. And even though I think his Deleuze chapter could be super beefened, but it was but it was like a it was it was still kind of an early approach to uh, at least in the spheres that he traveled, you know, not being a Deleuzian to uh, to kind of give a little little taste, a little morsel of it, and and that's when I looked into Deleuze. I looked into what he had done. I you know read Nietzsche philosophy. I got there's repetition and logic of sense, um, and it was through that that I uh, I saw being an event had just been translated. Yeah, so that came out, I think, late 2000s. I have to look at the date. And in English, obviously. And just the name being an event immediately before I even like read anything about it, I, I knew that would be like this great <laughs> work of philosophy because yeah. to have the balls to echo being a time, being a nothingness. Ah, uh, okay. There's, okay. Probably, there's probably a couple of other ones, but those are kind of, you know, those are master master right. at least at least in terms of prestige if not yeah. in terms of thought right i mean yeah it, it, it's immediately just ordered a copy kind of blindly that was an interesting purchase in my opinion it's just like all right this is obviously going to be some 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 good shit and and it is it's um it was around that time that i started reading more Deleuze, reading badu on reading all kinds of literature on them and their and their differences and their ontologies and their approach to mathematics you know badu lays out some of this that you know on his side in in the clamor of being some of that uh their differences right they're like these twin brothers that that diverge and, and almost like force themselves to take opposite paths so it was around then that I don't remember how it happened. I think that my another professor of mine named Sid Littlefield, who was a who was a really great guy, and he was he did his dissertation on Deleuze. So it was very lucky. He was just an instructor at the time there. He didn't get tenure there, and that philosophy department was was very very small. And he was a young guy. Uh, and I think that he was very happy with. He was the biggest influence on me. He he was the one that knew Nick Land and Ray Brazier and and Nagarastani and. So that CCRU group, and he was very into some of the more, I, you know, uh, I say obscure, but some of the more, uh, some of the, yeah. that minor line of thinking that Deleuze travels down. And somehow, I think we got, we had gotten into discussing what is philosophy. And that book, in the body of the book, they don't say Francois Laurel's name, but they, they do have two footnotes to him. And it was those two footnotes. It was really that first footnote that, uh, you know, where he says, Larwell's, you know, one of the most interesting thinkers in contemporary philosophy today. Yeah, Deleuze is usually very charitable in his readings and stuff, but that that kind of that kind Peter of interest, right? Yeah, that 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 blanket declaration, and that was the first time I had seen his name, and I I I kind of because of uh, Brazier and his translations, he was one of the first to really bring him to the Anglosphere. I read his dissertation. I think it's still available just online. I think it's. It's like alien theory, or I have to again feel like my memory of, of certain titles today is bad. But yeah, that <laughs> is so. And then uh, around that time, Nylon Bound came out, which oh, is yeah. you know I'm interested to delve into that. Actually, that's it's I mean, fun. I just mean, on the least, on title alone, yeah. it sounds uh -huh. right. Is recalling Prometheus Unbound, right? 
the, right. the Shelley work, right? Yeah. So um, around that time, yeah, Nylon Bound came out, and you know, there's a chapter on Laura Well. There's obviously there's also a chapter on Blues, and I believe on the Blue. By this point, Ray had he was probably still doing some great work with Nylon Fly, but he was beginning to transition, I think, into his own into his own realm and yeah. and, and path. He's the one that I don't know. I don't know if I would have ever gone down the translator path without Ray Brazzi. I mean, he, it's not like a causal thing, but it's definitely like a, it was a catalyst. Yeah. I think Brazzi's translations and his work. And I remember, and I was this kid, so you can just picture like first class with Sid Littlefield. I hadn't ever spoken to him. I'm sitting in the back, and it's actually a pretty big class. I'd say a brown. 25, 30 kids. And it's, uh, I think it was like a sophomore level philosophy. I don't remember what the class was called, but it was basically like a 20th century French philosophy. And he mentioned Laura Well in his like opening monologue, just kind of introducing, we didn't read Laura Well in for the class, but this, at this point, besides Brazier's translations and one or two other strange occurrences in the chronology of Laurel's translation. There wasn't really anything out there, but he had mentioned Laurel as a, he was making a point about just where some of the the movements of thinking, specifically from post-World War II French philosophy, structuralism, post-structuralism, that he was kind of tracing in, in, in very, in a very like accessible way for non-experts, us, you know, us graduate students or graduate, undergraduate students. I, I still remember him like beautifully laying out this notion of like a flat ontology, if you just want to be straightforward about it with and talking about the Liz and uh, the university of being and stuff. He was able to like, you know, really in, in the most efficient way, like say these big concepts and explain it to us. And, but he mentioned Laura well, and he kind of paused after his thought and I just kind of blurted out. I was like, I'm sorry, uh, did you did you say Lardreau? And of course, Guy Lardreau um, had, there was some work in some of the similar journals I believe in the in the Angelaki Journal and in the Ply the um, it's the Warwick University of Philosophy or University of Warwick Philosophy Journal that Peter Howard who's got a who's got several books he's got he's got a book on Badu that's really good I recommend um, he had translated some of Guy Lardreau and Lardreau wrote books with this other guy named um, Bombay they wrote the Angel quote unquote which Laura talks about in his early years which is a the Angels is really, it's kind of a book written in response to anti-Edifice, but also some of Leotard's work in the period, yeah. the liberal economy. And the Angel is like the, it's kind of like the paragon, the image of, of, I would say borderline mystical aesthetic, aesthetic, right? In, in the sense of the aesthetic idea of, of like the, this, the Angel is exemplifies the lack of desire or the extinction of desire or something like this. So it's, it's, it was kind of a, I don't necessarily think it was an attack on it, but it was definitely in, in dialogue with in response to, so I was, I was already like on that first day kind of grasping at straws and, and really just on the, on the seat of my pants, not really knowing mm -hmm. anything. And yeah. And so after class, you know, he pulled me aside. He was like, how the fuck you know about Lardro, right? It's like, <laughs> how, how did you hear about this guy? And we started talking about a little bit about Laura Well. And I had talked about Brazier. I had really only kind of shuffled through some of the pages of the different translations uh, out there from Brazier, and um, and so he told me more about him. And and he he we talked about Deleuze because that was really the guy I was I was kind of um, 
into as well as do. I mean, I was reading like Logic of Sense and being an event, like kind of juggling them at the same time, which was really cool about them. If you think about it, you know, the Logic of Sense is written in, in series, right? Instead of chapters and being an event is like, it's like meditations, quote unquote, right? So they have this and you can kind of skip meditations and series and read in between. And there's a, there's a fluidity to both of them. But anyway, um, he basically told me that like Laurel had this essay, this response to Deleuze that he wrote in the same year Deleuze passed away in 95 and that, that I should look into it, you know, because I, I had mentioned to him that, that this was a, probably within the first few months of me just working on translating little bits of Rouye and these other thinkers. And so Laurel, you know, the first translation I really ever did that was, well, the one I, the one that I got fully published, that was the, uh, the response to the list. And he worked with me on that. So we got to be one of my like first like little CV publications, right? I, I get to share what I saw as, you know, my most important mentor, Sid, you know, we got to, we got to share like a citation. And that essay is when I was working on it and, and translating it and, and trying to understand it. Um, I found it to be, it has moments that are polemical, like, like Badu, but it, but it has, but the flavor and like the transversal of his criticism of Deleuze really was something that I needed to hear at the time, right? Because of, I'll just, to sum it up in, in a nutshell, the sort of unrestrained affirmationism that Deleuze brings. There's something I think that Laura Well was wanting me to be sensitive to and to, and to make sure that I wasn't as Nietzsche might say, right, there's a, there are certain, there are different valuations and gradations of, of affirming, of saying yes. There's the active way and the passive way, at least, in, if not shades in between, right? So that the, I think he gives an image of like a donkey being whipped or a carrot being, you know, used to, to goad it on. That type of yes is a, without the ability to, to engage our faculties of reaction which involves thought, thinking, intelligence, memory, et cetera, then that kind of yes is, is actually almost worse than a no. Right? It's, it's the yes of, of slavery, of submission, of knee-jerk reactions, right? Of, of reflexes in, 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 the, in the unexamined mode. And obviously, like, Michi wants us to, 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 to have a, a, at least a type of reflexive distance between the yes to stand aside from it and, and to be able to evaluate it and affirm it as yes, rather than rather just to be a reaction. So I see something similar with, with that. I, again, I'm not fully convinced that Laura was right on everything, especially even when it comes to Liz, especially. I, but he always, at least in that essay, and that's what drew me to him, to, in this, to the initial question, right? It's, it's the very fact that it's, it gave me new tools, new sensitivity to sounding out idols, you know, philosophical or otherwise, I, ideal, you know, idols. And many of which I had kind of built built for myself. And that perhaps Deleuze, you know, there's something that he, he resonates with with people. I think he, he can turn people off too very, very easily. But he but there is there is something that, that uh is very seductive about his writing, you know, and and his style. I mean, like you and I reading Proust of the Science, there's something very elegant about his his approach you know i had kind of attached myself to deleuze in a way that yeah that was that i justified as being a scholarly kind of an academic thing but but that's not what brings the passion to it you know and and that's not what fueled me to 
think about translation as something that I could do and that I should do. You know, so so that kind of naivete, which is another word Larwell used for Deleuze, but he uses it for all philosophy. That kind of naivete that of a sort of unrestrained affirmationism and a, and a sort of becoming equal to the events, and I could I could say another hundred Deleuze slogans. That kind of stuff spoke to me. And yeah. um, and Anti Oedipus was a book that I feel like it's the book I've probably read in. I, I don't always just sit and read it cover to cover. When I started over, I just kind of like turn to it and, and flip through it. That's also, I mean, the first book that I did, as you know, was was the was the Machine of Unconscious, and so the the first thing that I did was knowing that they wrote several books together. It showed that hey, maybe the Squatchery guy is pretty cool too, right? <laughs> like, yeah. what's this what's the Squatchery guy doing over here? Because at the time, you know, and 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 this is all like kind of insider baseball shit, but you know, when you, when you just when you're when you're just doing your undergrad philosophy degree and you're, you're kind of Try to do all this stuff yourself. You don't necessarily, it's, you want to consume those primary texts before you start reading, at least for me, uh, the, the secondary text that might give you the whole insider look into what Guattari did and didn't do, say, in like writing anti because I had no idea until much later that Guattari was much more, more responsible for the writing and Deleuze was more responsible for the editing. And, Interesting. And that's in Deleuze's own words. Um, yeah. so, so little stuff like that, little details that Guattari but I, but I had the, the thought that Guattari was a, obviously a good thinker of his own. And that's when I found out about a lot of the work that Gary Janosko do, does. And he's not the only like Guattari scholar in the world, but he's definitely, I mean, he definitely Probably made the most prominent, huh? At, at least in English language, he was, yeah. he set the precedent that one could approach Guattari for his own sake and that Guattari deserves to, to be considered a, a individually. And it was that that I saw there were a number of books that weren't translated by his by him. And I um after reading a number of his essays that some of which Gary translated himself, he's another influence obviously on me. I saw that I think in the Abarrett introduction he writes about the machine and unconscious and, and, and relays some of its some of its points. And I really always liked that title, thinking that that was like it's fucking cool. And it made sense too, the the notion of a machine. As far as machine unconscious, yeah. I mean, I mean that's that's right. that's that's right in the, <laughs> the name of the podcast. Chapters. Like it's too, it's yeah. too good, right? <laughs> well, and, and in the opening, I think in the very opening chapter, they 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 say very quickly that the that it's about machines and about you know breaks and flows and et cetera. That there's a that the unconscious is a factory, right? It's sort of a theater. So it it immediately that the 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 metaphor, the analogy, or just whatever. So I, I picked that up, and I think by this time I was probably about a year into translating and. I translated the introduction, which is what I was wont to do at that time, you know, <laughs> to, to like, to just say, okay, I'll do a little, a little slice. And if it's a book, it was always like the preface of the intro or something. And I remember that being probably besides the Laura Well essay, um, at that point, just, just freelancing, just doing it on my own. That was probably the longest piece I had just done for the blog. And I really liked it. I really liked the introduction. I really liked the thoughts contained in it. I liked the promise of going into the semiotic stuff because yeah Janosko lays out very he, he has a great chapter on like Helmslev and, and Guattari for those interested. I highly recommend them. Nice. Have to check um, that out. Yeah, maybe put it in the show notes. And uh so I was I was very excited by the by that opening chapter and I it always struck me that the second paragraph begins like we have the unconscious we deserve. And it's like <laughs> it's almost like this rally cry, right? That, yeah. That absolutely. one could see you know, because at this point I was, 
I was finally starting to read more Freud. Um, Derrida was, was the one, and and the Practical Criticism class because we had to do we had to do like a mock reading of I say mock like a kind of a, a bullet point reading of Shelley's Frankenstein and apply. And one way it's monstrous and great is that you can pretty much apply any oh yeah there's so any much theory uh, to it. I mean. It literally, and when I say theory, I mean literary theory. Yeah, um, more more specific. Because for me, theory was always literary theory. Right. You know, a lot of times, I I think about it that way. Um, but but yeah, so you know, you can you can obviously do the Freud thing. I mean, and you can be very crude about it, obviously. And and Bauteri wants us. Yeah, because there's a whole Oedipal yeah, kind of yeah, vibe right. in terms of the monster, and yeah, okay. And at the very end, right where the the monsters chasing Frankenstein and. There's queer theory there, right? Because it's their it's their wedding night. They're about to he's about to bust the cherry and and consummate the marriage. And of course, the monster you know interrupts. It's the, the coitus interruptus, so to speak. <laughs> or, or, or I don't think he like walks in on him, but I think he like prevents them from. And you know, their wife dies, so they do a whole queer theory thing. Anyway, of course, you can be very molar and hackneyed about it. And part of the the exercise was to you know, to, to apply in these broad strokes, these different literary theories, including deconstruction yeah. and stuff. And then he would kind of then say, okay, so now unpack, you know, unpack a, a piece of piece of the text, uh, you know, what paragraph, some, some, some nice lines, you know, elaborate, you know, you, so, so he drill this into my head. So, but you have to like, obviously you have to select and this, and this actually does bear on, on the Laura well. So, you select a, a passage, right? And and usually you want to select the most like densely and richly significant um, passages that that are going to allow you to illustrate where it is in the text, and, and so it's, it's it's already in communication with a with the chronological narrative, at least ideally. And and you you kind of suss out the the importances, the uh, and some of the things that are already implied right so the subtext the context etc you do all of that and he would you know he pushed us he would he would poke holes in it he would and he would also be constructive too and suggest how we could go further always instead of because because really you know at this stage we're, we're just grasping at applying these things and so of course we're going to have you know we're not going to have any dexterity for laura well once we get closer to chapter four, there's going to be something very similar to this where we, we select a material and ideally, even before we go into preparing it for its manipulation, um, we want to, we, we usually have our own biases that pull us towards certain, whatever material we're going to seize upon. It's always more interesting to choose that, which is like, you know, saturated with, with, with its philosophical content. Yeah. Um, and so that for him is, Obviously, at our whim, and this is why there are, you know, infinite variety of non-philosophies. And long story short, I'll just, I'll just finish the Guattari thing after translating the, the intro. I that was ballsy enough to like send off, send me a text and be like, "Hey, is anybody translating the book? I'll, you know, I'll, I'll do it." And I guess that was it. I kind of got, I got lucky. You know, I, I got um, there was a kind of a, a space there that I was wanting to acquire for myself. You know, I wanted. I wanted to read these things myself, as I've always told you. So it has a selfish drive, and at the same time, I I've always wanted to be a part of like a, a community of of thinkers and, and, and people engaged in, in in some of these 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 avenues. I wanted to 
be able to share in these avenues and not just not just like hoard it for myself. Uh, so so yeah, that's 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 where the translation thing goes mm-hmm. into. And you know, Longwell himself talks about non philosophy, and in many ways, he talks about it as a kind of generalized translation. I think in the second part of my translator's intro, I I bring this up in his his way of talking about it. But you know, long story short is you know it really there is a, a sense in which we take we take a philosophical material sometimes it'll be just a line like he he riffs off of hegel's line about you know man it's this dark night and he more or less you know produces what's not only at once a, a thought experiment but a kind of poetic riffing if you will it's this unraveling and it's this musical variation of Hegel's line and in its refrains and it's in it in the way it unfolds it as I kind of said last time it inscribes within it 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 writes within it carries across the philosophical material but it but it already has it transformed to articulate its own foreclosure or its own turning away from the one turning in line with the one unilaterality is another way to put it later he'll talk about clones and stuff like this right that the philosophical material is like clone from the one or clones of the one and shit like that. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's, that's, I guess that's the story of my like background <laughs> getting into to Laura. Well, um, I never really put him down. There's always been something that, that, that's drawn me to him. And I think part of that is, is cultivating, as I said last time, cultivating a kind of heresy, you know, keeping me honest with my, Delos fandom. <laughs> yeah. For in Nietzsche fandom and, yeah. And really just philosophy Dara. fandom, right? Yeah. You know, it, it, and of course, Laura Well is, is, one could say it's like a, a means to an end of doing philosophy, but like doing it slant or something. Um, because in the end, you know, non-philosophy, it, it is by appearance, obviously always going to be philosophical insofar as it deals with philosophy as its material. But that's, that's, that's always just an, an appearance. And, and yet non-philosophy allows me to do one of the things I, I love, which is to have a kind of, as he'll say it, like an un, unlimited pragmatics of philosophy. And so it makes me rethink and bracket, if you will, in the kind of necessarily an epiche of bracketing <laughs> certain things. Yeah. It, help, it helps me to bracket certain things like, um, oh, I don't know, um, univocity, for example. That's just a great example. I won't even go into like what it is for SCOTUS and, and Deleuze. That's that's not the immediate thought in my head, but just the I can imagine a kind of a simple but a, a simple non-philosophical like rewriting of university just by adding that hyphen between the the, the uni and the and the varsity and and doing some some sort of manipulation of that concept that, you know, as we'll see based on certain rules but even just based on a really what you're elaborating is is are are these these rules according to which the one is obviously not on the same plane it's radical eminence and keeps it uh in its radical autonomy keep it from from entering into this this mirror stage with 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 philosophical language or language in general um so it is it is a treatment of language too at its at its at its basis the means through which this goes is philosophy. And he gives certain reasons for why non-philosophy starts with philosophy or at least 
is exemplified by its work on philosophy and then uh, already shows to have these other effects like, you know, like we'll call it non-aesthetics. will have, you know, he'll have non-epistemology. Yeah, there's non- non-philosophy, non, not non-philosophy, non-photography. And then non-photography, there's right. the non-Marxism book. Non-Marxism. Well. So, you know, the non, and, and I think it's in this book and we haven't come to it yet, but the, I'll have to track it down and we'll talk about it next time. But the, you know, Larwell has some, the quick arguments, um, and he doesn't dwell on them too long, but he'll articulate why philosophy exemplifies the, I think for him, and this gets into your question about science. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to kind of start to edge toward that, that question of what does science mean for, for Larwell and on a, almost mystical, and one could say pseudo quasi-mystical pronouncement, he will say, um, instead of Deus sive natura, right, God or nature, he's, he'll say homo sive scientia, right, uh, man or science. And um, for him, science, he'll say that if not the very last, then philosophy is one of the last scientific continents. What he means by that is based on rigorous rules that aren't already sort of determined philosophically, that philosophy has never either allowed itself or had the capacity or never had the encounter of a, of a science, of an external science that would have an autonomy that wouldn't be constituted or, or uh, co-determined even by philosophy. Because philosophy has always wanted to treat itself philosophically and therefore claim to, by doing so, to, to be absolute science. And Hegel already lays this out in the science of logic, what the goal is and, you know, how the movement of spirit and uh, throughout the, the different, um, the different interplays, how it is this kind of spiraling perfection of discourse itself. Part of what Laurel brackets a lot of the time not exclusively, but this is one of the main objects, is the logos, right? Uh, or, or just even the, the, the suffix logi or logical. It's like, you know, he'll write it out, episto, epistemo hyphen theo hyphen logi, right? This, this monstrous portmanteau word that, you know, is causing this, this separation and, and this really this em- emphasis on knowledge, God, word, right? Like this, you can kind of see it in your head. And, and for Laura, well, philosophy itself can be the object of knowledge for a science. If we protect it in its sort of, in its autonomy, in its radical autonomy, hence why it's man or the one from philosophical determination or, or conflation the insidiousness with which natural language and the use of natural language spontaneously sort of contaminates it from the start. So, so really, in that sense, in that sense of non-philosophy pursuing a generic science for philosophy, that's why that's why you have to be careful. That's why there have to be rules. That's why you can't. That's why it's not just a kind of riffing, if you will. It's not just a a, a generalized riffing, even though. That's part of it. That's part of the, the kaleidoscopic, fractal, you know, non-aesthetic effects that can be produced. But if it wants to be a science and not just kind of artistic mutation of philosophy, 
which is, I think, one of the things that Derrida excels at, for example. Um, he's not the only one, but some of these more literary-minded, more artistic-minded thinkers, and even like Deleuze and Guattari with A Thousand Plateaus and the, the Rhizome book, that's a different, it's a totally different direction. But again, there is, you know, one could say Derrida seems more attuned to, to painting at times. Deleuze and Guattari want us to read A Thousand Plateaus like a, like when this is to a record. However you want to say it, there are these interesting artistic uh, mutational effects from Deleuze and Derrida. I think Laurel wants to cultivate that, and, and, and he really respects that. He really sees that as a possibility, you know, which is why if, if one slams together Deleuze and Derrida like they're like they're photons in a <laughs> in a uh, yeah in, in an atom smasher, yeah. right? Then uh, particle accelerator, a super, a super collider, right? Yeah, yeah. Then 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 Laurel wants us to see, you know, generalized deconstructive buggery, but. You know, done through done through what he'll call libido of writing in the seventies. Um, Ooh, libido of writing. Oh, libido of writing <laughs> with hyphenated like libido of. <laughs> so writing writing libido. If you if you read it with a French mind, you could see that. Which for him is you know the I kind of said this quickly last time the the reign of atextual forces in this in plugging together uh, the world's power and internal return. That's a, libido of writing is 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 one of the for that and um, leaving that aside for a second it's I think that that's what you see when you take the Lewis and Derrida to their limit is this is this generalized deconstructive buggery but we don't yet get to but but if that isn't tempered by the sort of axiomatic rules laid out for how non-philosophy is also and maybe even more importantly a science of philosophy and not just a a mutation of its artistic composition, then we have to further that slogan of a kind of generalized deconstructive buggery and, and, and make sure we understand that as an effect of the possibilities of different variations uh, of non-philosophy and not as its, as its foundation. Does that make sense? Yeah. To back up to kind of like that opposing or just bring up becoming versus being and so mm-hmm. forth. And like, because I think it's important to lay out that differential because Laurel is focusing primarily his language is being focused is my interpretation of like eminence and becoming having a certain relationship like a co-determinant like that image I gave of the piece of paper burning yeah like I feel like that's to me that is what when I think of like plenty of eminence and becoming that's the the image that is conjured in my head because of that like immediacy of like there's a there's a contingent, like contingency is part of it as well, what differentiates being from becoming and you know, you know, within the, yeah. specifically within the context of La Royal, but it perhaps even might be good to articulate that distinction or like whatever, maybe not even distinction, but relationship between becoming being. Right. I, I you know, the, with, with Deleuze in mind, you know, there's, there's a couple of places we could go to talk about this. You know, there's this, there's obviously in logic of sense, there's, there's that differentiation between material bodies and incorporeal effects that he, he draws out from the Stoics and particularly from a very influential philosopher named, uh, Emile Brehier. He writes this beautiful little book on, on the Stoics and on, uh, the incorporeal. And, uh, so, you know, events, you know, they, they, they subsist and they insist that they, but they, they do produce these effects, right? He, he, linguistically, he'll say, he'll say, obviously, like, 
plant or grass is a you know is a body it's a it's the infinitive like to green right he'll use that poetic notion or you know the notion of of a wound versus to be cut right so these these events yeah. you know they 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 reveal the they they reveal the kind of virtual capacity for bodies to be affected and obviously to burn right using that as in the sense of, of an event for the the paper one can sense in in that the there is a kind of incorporeal going on and one can imagine that if becoming is is you know situated on a plane of you know whether it be unholy nuptials or you know all the fun ways that they go through it you know one can sense that the molecules of the paper burning are there they are they are taken to a to an intensive liminal energetic yeah threshold chemical as well and physical and those multiplicities are taken to a certain limit that uh, once crossed causes or causes is is part and parcel of the transformation of the becoming ash yeah of the paper right okay so with Laura well with Laura well um, obviously becoming is for him you know he would he would bracket it just as much as all the other transcendentals and he would he would capitalize it right becoming being one multiple and you know for him it would be a question of philosophy's notion of becoming whether it be fire in the Heraclitian sense, whatnot, even if it uses the same terms, mm -hmm. he'll want to argue that even when science uses the same words or seems to use the same words as philosophy, there's no coincidence there in the broadest sense, right? That, that science's use of a term, of a concept, of a, of a word. And he gives a specific example. I forget what okay. the word is off the top of my head. Damn it. <laughs> um, it's a good question. Well, maybe it'll come to us later. The science is use of a word sort of oh it was it was a priori yeah a priori, a priori. yeah a priori it, it precedes philosophy's use of it in in stature in status and that's precisely due to its simplicity due to its and i mean by simplicity it's non-reflexive instantiation right that the science uses for example you know even into the late 19th century the the notion of ether was still not yeah. floating floating around <laughs> and it, and, it, and it, it's the same as like the status of, of a notion like the corpuscle in yeah. New, Newton's time. Right. That that science in its attempts to uh, obviously to to sort of make models correspond to phenomena as we uh, are able to measure them and perceive them and sort of uh, and verify them and repeat them. Obviously, that's important too. You know, those stand-ins are are useful. Uh, they 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 fill a a void that, that logical thinking. Abhors. And and this gets us back, we talked a little bit about this last time, but this gets us back to the Copernican Revolution that, you know, there's a there's a sense in which and Laplace talks about this too in terms of psychoanalysis. He has a great essay on this and uh, I think it's called Essays on Otherness. I think it literally is called the Copernican Revolution. But the point being, you know, Ptolemy is famous for sort of bootstrap strapping Aristotle's sort of cosmological or astronomical model, the model for the solar system. And creating these continuously refined variations in phenomena for explaining some of the movements of the planets. So the revolution of the sun around the Earth involved these interesting sub-like circles, these little almost spirals or vortices within the, the the orbit. And these had to become increasingly fine as we gathered more and more data about like Mercury's retrograde and shit like that. That's one of the phenomena that has to be explained 
how is it that uh that this occurs if the sun is not the center and so copernicus in a almost occam's razor type way even though it's it's more there's obviously more legwork being done but you know by his time you know that kind of explanation wasn't needed to be tested right that 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 testing that ptolemaic theory and simplifying it and and questioning its presuppositions that's what made some of what Copernicus did possible at least theoretically obviously you know as as i said as we as we gather more and more data some of those fictions that 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 are stand-ins that that help to allow science to do what it does like or puzzle like uh like ether etc those are mercilessly always sort of at 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 risk of falling out of favor precisely because they no longer perform the function that they're supposed to or they are they are revealed to to really be a constellation of other effects and index other phenomena that they don't explain and in fact obscure and i think uh Larwell wants to to say that if we were to have a science of philosophy that can that can rigorously take philosophy as its object and respect its the the independence of its object respect the identity of its object um without mixing the the phenomena together right so we don't just have like a primordial philosophical suit um once we rehandle we 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 create monsters but we create monsters that look like their fathers to to go back to like frankenstein you know what i mean and so what what we have to do then there's a moment later in the book where he talks about the difference between the object knowledge and the We'll call it the okay and the aura, right? And that there is a certain. I mean, obviously, in history of philosophy, there we, we can liken it to the phenomenon and the noumenon, right? The 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 object versus the thing in itself, whatever. I mean, you could you could go through a list of things. It's that science obviously works with objects of knowledge. Um, it has to respect the the difference between the two, and it's in in in, in 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 depending on the approach and the and the framework, whatever that, that, that distinction can be more or less foregrounded, but it's, it's precisely that philosophy, uh, non-philosophy doesn't intervene into actually existing philosophies. It doesn't come and say like, Hey guys, get along. It's going to be cool. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't try to do textual commentary or, yeah. you know, it doesn't try to do uh, this kind of archival work. Um, not that that's, that's not important. That's just, it's precisely that the matrix of, possible descriptions of the one, but also the matrix of the rules of manipulating philosophical material go hand in hand, right? Because when we, when we manipulate a phrase of Hegel's, like I said, the, the man is the dark knight, mm-hmm. this, this, or, or some of the primordial pronouncements of, of the elements, you know, it's, you always preserve the, the sense of identity of the, the object of knowledge, right? You, you're not destroying the philosophical, the, philo- the, the philosophy or the philosophical multiplicity that is being examined and being tested and being rehandled. You don't destroy it. You don't dismantle it. You don't mutilate it. You don't dismember it. What you do is you lift a postulate. You lift one of his postulates. For him, it's, or I'll call it a principle. You, you lift the principle sufficient philosophy, the, the PSP. You lift the sufficiency, the the auto legitimacy, the uh, the bootstrapping nature of the philosophical material, and you kind of sterilize it, as he as he wants to say. You uh, you isolate it, and you isolate its sense of identity from that principle, which for him, even though that principle makes sure that there is and always will be philosophy and is the kind of the motor of its, of the recycling of its rare material, its rare stock, 
Mm-hmm. That that is even though it allows philosophy to to continue on in this way, it actually innervates it and and imposes these internal limits on it that allow for a manipulation of itself within a philosophical regime. And then it's precisely by introducing the philosophical material to non-philosophical pragmatics to this infinite pragmatics of philosophy, not in philosophy but for it. And for man, really more generally, right? For man in person or generic humanity or... Let me understand pragmatics yeah. philosophy. That's a... I don't... <laughs> so that's part and parcel of, of some of the... I would say all the stuff I said about artistic mutation, the possibilities of riffing and all this. Yeah. That that if it is divorced from this move that Laurel wants to claim, as we'll get to more and more in these future episodes, going into the rules and, and such... If we merely have an artistic manipulation and mutation of philosophy, a kind of musical baroqueism, and we don't adjoin it immediately with both the analytic moment of uh, analyzing and targeting its symptom, right? It's it's resistance to the name of the real, or resistance to foreclosure of thought, or resistance to its non-co-determination of the real, etc. If we don't yoke the artistic to the analytic and the theoretical, really the scientific moment that we've been talking about, then we don't get to pragmatics. As for him, pragmatics, you know, I mean, um, for Guattari, Guattari and Michigan Conscious gives, gives a huge pride of place to pragmatics, which was always considered kind of a, a sub-sub-discipline, kind of a, a ghetto bordering uh, in, in the outskirts of, of linguistics. Mm-hmm. And, and he, he precisely shows with his with his denunciation of the Caesarians and the, and the Chomskyans, et cetera, uh, that in fact, pragmatics taken as the science of the change in language, et cetera, based on usage. If you just want to be very like simple about it, I know right. it has a much more nuanced definition and different definitions depending on the disciplines we go into. But, but if that's the case, then that means that really pragmatics is the is what we should be focusing on to understand uh, not just linguistic changes but the, the changes in self-expression and therefore you know the unconscious at large if that's the case then pragmatics is is, is actually the broader discipline and linguistics is just a subdiscipline because it merely is focused on on language when for Guattari, he's wanting to think about the effects of the of the unconscious on all levels of signs that are both semiological and and therefore linguistic or significational and then the, the semiotic, right? The the either abstract machines or or, or, or whatever. Um, with with Laurel, it's the same thing that pragmatics is a regulated um, kind of practice of rehandling material based on the rules that that are rules according to the one, according to you know, either whether he thoughts foreclosure or um, unilaterality, you know, these, these other things we can go into more. Um, but that's more or less what I think he means by an unlimited pragmatics of philosophy and not just an unlimited artistic and artful play with philosophical concepts, right? It's, it's not just that we're, we're playing, playing with philosophy once again, because philosophy right. is, is what plays with itself. Playing with philosophy like we do with memes and, and so forth, right? Yeah, I mean, it's... I was wondering too, like, is pragmatics would, okay, so, you know, I, I mentioned this, I think, briefly, like, I've got this idea for a Lacan comic book, 
where yeah. I would sort of explore, you know, psychoanalysis, Lacan's work, even Deleuze, Guattari, etc., right, through the vehicle of, of the comic book. Is that a type of pragmatics? Well, I think that or that's... Or that is that too, like, on, too on the surface? No, no, I, I think that it is. I mean, look, again, whether or not it follows the rules set out in this book, it's, okay, something, gotcha. we, it's, it's right. something we can leave aside. Right, okay. Right, I mean, yeah, you are in your own way, and again, there's nothing, it's not, I don't mean to say in, in what I've said previously that there's something wrong with art or there's something wrong with creatively engaging right. philosophy. That, yeah. I, that's not at all what Laurel was yeah. trying to say, and I, I did. I, did I, I guess I was just trying to say that it's obvious that one can be creative uh-huh. with philosophy, either with reading philosophy, with writing it, um, or in your case, with uh, introducing new or um, not new, but um, non-standard, I would say, non-standard uh, forms of media for um, exemplifying the both the history of thought and you know the the, the recent history, obviously, with Deleuze and Lacan and, and these others and Guattari. Um, you're showcasing it, yeah, in such a way that, um, and I think that's the same thing with memes, right? Your memes are, are packages of not just obviously philosophical content and idea, but they're, they're packages of ideas, right? They yeah. are, and obviously sometimes memes themselves be, become stereotypes, right? They become archetypes, if you will, become insisted in certain massive forms that are already hollow by the time that they even reach us that we are inspired to rehandle them or to interact with them or to relay them virally because there is something viral about memes in a, in a broad sense, right? Um, not necessarily a biological sense, although one could obviously easily argue there. I always come um, back to this just because I think like at least at the very least semiotically, like there's something posting and memes are like just the perfect distillation, I think, of, of semiotics, right? Yeah. I, mean, I think it's it's a very, it's like something that everyone can understand and apply. And I think it's relevant as far as at least semiotics go. Um, yeah, it's, it's potentially addressable to, to all individuals, even if some memes are more inside than others. Um, you know, yeah. my, my, my friends. Or even like, what about that phenomenon of kind of, I have articulated to you before how I like to let, so it's like a, a tiramisu. So like the more, the more layers of um, right. interpretations that I can pack within one thing or like any kind of indeterminacy that I can put in a post or meme mm-hmm. is there's a jouissance yeah. that's associated with that as well. Like there's a, a feeling of satisfaction. If you can sort of stack the, these different one certain one level re- of reading is going to go this way, or it could be this way or so forth and so forth. Yep. As many as you can kind of pile on, obviously like, yeah, it changes from situation to situation. But I think Freud talked know. about this that's why story. I always ask because I think like it's something that I can like easily digest in that format, and right, it's obviously right. it's it's writing, it's signs, it's signifier, signified, it's visual. Like so, that's why I always try to <laughs> draw everything back to, to posting and memes because it's something that's like so immersed. Uh, you know, I think the people that are listen, you know, most of our listeners are either engaged in that world or exposed to it you yeah. know, on, on social media, yeah, but, yeah, also exactly. but also in everyday life too. Right. I mean, we, we don't necessarily see that, you know, in the most general sense, the way it was laid out by Dawkins, you know, there's, there are genes and there are memes, right. So 
Um, memes are more of a kind of, you know, broadly social. Well, I, I mean, I would say machinically unconscious, uh, but you know, they're, yeah. they're, they're, they, that's why they have that viral, uh, aspect without yes. being biological, right? They yeah. are the, they are the transmission, the velocity of exchange of, of ideas. Yes. And, Hell yeah. and, 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 and meme is just a conceptual way to, to crystallize or to talk really about like little thought crystals, you know what I mean? Yeah. That, that are, that can burst open and, and release these these contaminating spores. Again, I'm using biological metaphors for that reason. But obviously on the other side of genes, which replicate too, and, and you know, the whole notion of, of memes replicating and whether or not they kind of vie for superiority in the same way as genes is, is an open question and mm-hmm. is is interesting yeah, in its own right. But, but but Laura Will himself, I think in chapter two, we'll look later, or maybe maybe it's chapter five where he talks about the genetic code of philosophy. Yeah, that's an interesting. And and so I would say that what Laurawell wants to isolate and suspend insofar as we submerge philosophy and philosophical material into a kind of pre-decision or decisionless core and chaos that allows it to be sterilized of, of its of its of, of its elements of sufficiency and, and and prepare it for a non-philosophical rehandling. That's I think that the, the decisional matrix, the decisional structure that Laura wants to suspend could potentially be called the genetic code of philosophy. That's philosophy's genetic code. That, that That's how it replicates itself. That's its stock of genetic material. And yet it also at the same time undeniably has these intense, you know, ethical effects of redounding upon all of our, uh, you know, uh, our acts, our feelings, our thoughts, our means of expression, the, the components we have at our disposal due to our, you know, our use of natural language, our use of everyday language, and, and just our use of, of ideas, right? That's the that's the names, right? It, it, it's obvious that philosophy participates in this. It's not the only discipline to, it's not the only discourse to, but it has its place um, sort of on all levels of thinking and and, and, ins- and and insinuates itself there too. I think Laura Wall, that's part of again to get back to it, that's that's part of the the vigilance, if you will, of um sort of rehandling material because it's precisely that in our non philosophical rehandlings we could try to just imagine constructing a transcendental computer that could could think and compute sort of all the philosophical variations past present and future hypothetically and could then produce a suspension like in some sort of non-philosophical variation but if we did that and said okay that's enough we're done there's something to that 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 itself is a philosophical outlook because it assumes all we need to do is change change the language kind of Mm -hmm. like ordinary language philosophy as though we could if we just they're just really good about using language in a certain way that we solve all the problems. And I think Laura wants to survive with that too, to think that, okay, I manipulated Hegel and inscribed within the, the philosophies of Hegel, you know, whatever variation, Hegel variation, I've, I've, I've inscribed within its, its own little alpha bond of the alpha bond or some bullshit, right? That one could claim to have been. Uh, but no, if, if we think that, okay, I've done it, I've overcome Hegel, obviously that's when we're at our most Hegelian. And so Laurel wants us too to be uh, aware of 
our non-philosophical variations and rehandlings, and, and they have to also be collapsible and contingent and potentially resubmerged because there's a tendency to fall back on them as though they were solid foundations when really they are, you know, really they are provisional scaffoldings and, and provisional suspensions that can, again, become full of a certain self-legitimizing pretension if they, if we take them, therefore, as, as being the truth as the true way to speak Hegel or Deleuze, the truth of Kant, whatever. There's a, that's a kind of fascizing tendency to, right? That's a kind of, of a self-sufficient tendency, and it's the tendency that all philosophy betrays itself uh, having. So, yeah, it's just that, like, I think Laura will see what's trying to tell us, like, hey, you know, just because non-philosophy doesn't have all the answers, it's, it's not, it's not going to be enough to just claim to follow the rules and, and manipulate the material and be like, I did it, you know, I'm, I'm better. Because there, there, there is a moment of, of there is a little bit of, of pretension there in there. We talked about that a little bit last time with, you know, the non, non-philosophy as being a little too on the nose and too antagonistic in its, right. in its appearance. And versus non-standard. Yeah. Right, versus non-standard, which softens the blow a bit. Yeah. And, and so there is a sense in which, oh, I do non-philosophy so I can suspend all your decisions and no, no, fucking actually, you know, like, and just claim to have some kind of superiority. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, there's that would be just a counterproductive takeaway, a counterproductive reason to read Larwell to just be like, oh, well, well I'm better than all that philosophy. <laughs> you know, that's just, I, yeah. I, I think it, I think it's really meant for us, kind of like proofs, right? We, we read proofs, or proofs wants us to, for, to use the book as a tool to read into ourselves. And there's something I think with well, well, non-philosophy that it, 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 that it kind of helps us to focus more and more on sort of what we bring to the table, uh, as philosophers or as subjects of philosophy, uh, when we, when we read into a book or use a book to, to read into ourselves, whether it be the phenomenology of spirit or matter and memory, et cetera, like we, that we make sure we both are clear with, with the kind of uh, subjective presuppositions we bring to the table. And then those of, of philosophy and philosophy engaging us as philosophers and, 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 you know, Deleuze points it out as comments. It's like the um, good sense and common sense, right? As being disastrous for real thinking and learning, right? Because it's, it's, it's the everybody knows and, and those kind of, I mean, obviously already digital petition is kind of begins that way too. It's, it's, it's detailing the pitfalls of, that philosophy has always concerned itself with the pitfalls of objective and subjective presuppositions. And I think that Laurel just wants us to take that beyond any one argument concerning the real or any one philosophy saying that it has the, the closest access to the real or the most direct, that these types of mechanisms that are at work, the, the, the machinery, right, at work in, in philosophy, he wants us to become sensitive to that beyond any one rational argument or, or series of arguments. And I think that's why it's, it's, it's novel and potentially harbors the kind of mutations that he hopes to see philosophy continue to, to do. Because I, I do think he, he sees in 20th century philosophy, obviously some inspirations. It's just, it, it, it needs to go faster and further. There needs to be like a, 
and acceleration of, of those mutations brings you a catalyst. And, and I, I do think that, uh, I find some of that in, in Laura well, not just in him, but, but definitely I kind of find a, a refrain there of, of pursuing that, that, that we could really say the sort of unprecedented becoming, becomings of, of philosophy. So the philosophy becoming non-philosophy, if you will. Um, you know, you know, for itself, for its own, nice. for its like unlimited freedom. Two ideas that are coming to mind. One is this sort of a analogous or like overlap, and we kind of mentioned this a bit as far as like Max Stirner and uh, Laura Well. And I think the the common thread that I was thinking of here is like, so you said Laura Well was very much uh, opposed to this sort of Copernican revolution or like oh, full overturning of what came before. And that very much is in line with what Sterner Sterner likes the the insurrection, the more like mm-hmm. which is I think more in line with like an imminence of becoming than like you would think of in the sense of like Marxist revolution. So there's more of like a spontaneity. There's a it's more of like an imminent sort of thing. The other side is trying to think of okay, so philosophy can only do certain things now because we have a whole history the dead labor of all the philosophers that have have tread all this ground before right so the haunting once once marx does marx there's no real need there's no you you know what i mean the the utility of doing i think a political economy or an analysis of capital in that same regard sort of is becomes redundant Updated. yeah right or, you know what I mean? It's like that material has already, that ground has already, the tracks have been laid. So, right. Like you're going, and again, this maybe even goes down that picture of kind of like the idea, like the vision of the fractals that I get is like, you hit this point. So you hit Marx comes along, that's a point, And then that lines of flight emanate from Marx in all kinds of different directions and then, and then so forth. So like at the point that we're at now, like what can you do? Like there's no, there's sort of ground for doing any kind of like broader, like platonic project is kind of foreclosed upon just by the historical development of philosophy itself, right? Do you see, do you see what I'm saying? As, oh, yes. As far as that goes? No, so definitely. Like the, the, the move, I think, in the sense of like deterritorialization, reterritorialization, like that process continues on and on and so forth. So like only the more deterritorialized forms of thought, like that that tendency is going to keep on going. So you go down these sort of speculative rabbit holes or fractals of thought. So I don't know, maybe this is like an arboreal sort of, this is maybe a bad model for looking at the history of thought because it's very linear. Right, because you have sort of these points, almost like a family tree, right? So if you're starting with Plato or even pre Socratics, right? You know what I mean? You're starting with a point, that branch is here, that branch is here, and so on and so forth throughout the history of philosophy. And then when you get to us in the twentieth century, like what what philosophical projects are left for us to uncover or discuss that are novel and not how do you how do we go beyond Deleuze or I mean, is that what Maybe LaRuel is sort of doing is trying to map out a route beyond kind of what Deleuze and Guattari and, 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 or 
I mean, I, I mean, I definitely think that he, you know, he, his background, Warwell's, uh, his dissertation work is sort of on, um, philosophy's general economy, right? It's, it's economy of transcendentals or it's, a, it's economy of conceptual movements, et cetera. And, and, and part of the inspiration behind that is his apprenticeship to uh, Paul Ricoeur, you know, and he's written all kind of all over the place, especially in literature, and he's, he's a great thinker in his own right, but, you know, he's associated with the school of hermeneutics and sort of the, um, the sort of textual investigation of, um, uh, of not just signs, but again, like, means of syntax and, and, and the, the effects of, of text, um, and, the, and their exegesis as well, obviously. So this question of a kind of an art of interpretation and art of reading, I think is where he's initially engaged in, in Deleuze and Derrida, where it's, it, except it's on this level that, as he calls them textual machines, it's this level of sort of thinking about if we take text to their transcendent limit and sort of plug them into the real power we tell return and frame it in terms of this libido of writing, um, then we can think about a kind of uh, intensive economy um, that falls out of of not just concepts but also uh, or, or even syntactical manipulations because as we know you know the syntax and preposition of of a philosophy will really tell you a lot about its um uh its position whether it be dogmatic or idealist or materialist etc there's a lot of nuance going on and in, in just the interplay of those two things and and yet for Laurel, it's about these atextual forces, and he and this becomes really exemplified in 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 one of his next books after that in the seventies, um, late seventy seven, in uh, in Nietzsche contra Heidegger, in this, this sort of notion of a of a of a matrix of quote unquote reading Nietzsche, because for him, you know, we call it Nietzsche thought, and we'll say it's a political machine, and they'll they'll sort of plug Nietzsche into this framework for investigating, you know, what I'll call political continents. But the whole point being that there's already something interesting going on here. There's already something of of not remaining sort of insularly entrapped in the philosophical text, but sort of pushing it to the point of of revealing something something about, you know, as I said, whether it be politics or whether it be science or, or whether it be what a text can do when it's, when it, when it's not reduced to its signifying matrix. Um, I think that there's something fascinating going on that really Laura well that he'll say, you know, this is not yet the stage of novel philosophy proper precisely because there's still a sense in which he is, he's still trying to think of what if we played off Deleuze and Derrida and like sort of meld them together and, and slam them together, as I said, <laughs> these thought, thought particles and what yeah. are the effect? He's still thinking too intra-philosophically is what I'll say. Yeah. He's still okay. kind of thinking within the framework of philosophy and he hasn't right. yet gotten to that vantage point. And this is, again, comes back to that notion of a, of a kind of uh, infinite pragmatics, unlimited pragmatics. It's that if we are still within philosophy and we're still in the end interested in deriving philosophical effects from the interplay of you know either within one thinker of different texts or between two thinkers or a whole multiplicity of thinkers you know and all their texts and we mobilize all these philosophical things at the end of the day you are well if you're still 
working within the framework of philosophy for its own benefit and surplus value, then there's a sense in which that economy we are participating in, that I mean, that I'll call it a, a market, that that sort of capitalist exchange of ideas that philosophy that that accrues surplus value to philosophy in its exploitation of language, in its exploitation of thought, and its bewitchment and insource element and grip on on man, the exploitation of, of man, I'll say. If we're still participating on philosophy's behalf, we haven't yet taken it to its limit. We haven't yet taken it to its transcendent limit wherein it sort of opens itself, it opens its own gates to its barricaded castle and allows it to be infused with a with a kind of violence that is natural to any thinking, a kind of violence that doesn't violate it or its sanctity, but but sort of sort of like deprives it of its innermost holy sanctum, right? Its decisional kernel that is kind of like the the holiest of holies of the little the little golden idol, right? On the uh, the Indiana Jones, where the, where, you know, the non-philosophers, the Indiana Jones, where we're going to take that that little sacred idol, and it's and again, it's not to prevent philosophy from occurring. He'll he'll talk about it in terms of depotentiation. It's depotentializing philosophy, taking its power down because it because it already bootstraps itself to, to to believing that it is the square of itself, that it is to the second power. And this is why he talks about non-philosophy more recently uh, in terms of, you know, in terms of the function of the imaginary number, which is square root of negative one. And if we multiply a, a, a number squared by the square root of negative one, we, we, we take it down a power, right? We depotentiate it. And this is what, you know, this is why he'll talk about transcendence in philosophical terms or really in philosophical terms as, as being being doubled or being being uh, self exponentiated. And so there's a sim- there's a simplifying there's an and he'll call it an he'll really call it an amplifying and an amplifying, right? As as though one um his way of talking about it is a philosophy in its self bootstrapping, as I've been saying, thinks of itself as a as a kind of a corpuscle, as like a as like a molar uh, concrescence of, of, uh, of effects and identities and, and differences, etc. And Laurel shows that now philosophy is this, or really the eminence of the one is this more intense wave, more, um, sort of, uh, less molar, less, it's, it's wavelength is, is, is much, much shorter and therefore it's much more intense. And so we can go undetected by philosophies. Sort of macro, large wavelengths, and yet it can it can perturb it and 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 incline it and, and differentiate it such that you know it's it's able to eliminate the corpuscular form of philosophy and allow it to participate in this you know obviously this complementary wave particle formation that it always already is, but it but it's it's like it's it concretizes around its itself and its thought this this natural armor this natural resistance that is a kind of Transcendental hallucination is one way to talk about it. I'll, I'll leave that aside. We can get into that more later, but I just think it's like fucking a little bit like mind blowing. And that's, that's where he talk, he'll talk a lot more about thought particles and it's slamming together um, thought particles in this, in this experimental chamber uh, to, to see what effects 
come out of that kind of simulating the 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 the, the primordial um, philosophical big bang and the, the fallout that we're we're living in right like if if as bodies we are we are stardust like as as spirit right we are we are like philosophical thought dust and it's and, and for him it's about kind of affecting the kind of non Euclidean mutational framework that allows us to see that that you know that thought dust was was always non philosophical right in the, in the strictest sense it, it's, it's philosophy is kind of a parasite that that, that privileges itself and, and sort of uh, gives itself the means to to appropriate that that radical eminence. La Royal also calls philosophy the uh, unity of contraries, which I think is an interesting right unity of contraries. I mean, we talked about becoming what a total a totalizing what like a, I don't know de- not a definition perhaps a, like a model of what philosophy is as a whole like. A unity of contraries. Oh, that's an interesting. So, yeah, I mean, this is where he talks about philosophy works with two thirds principles. You have you have the one in being, for example, and their dialectic. And those are the those are the two. But the third is actually the dyad, their unity of of their dialectical unity of, of contraries. I mean, you could say being a nothingness and then becoming being the third wheel. That, Interesting. That is the dyad that that sort of, and you have you have you have others. I mean, for him, he'll see and Levinas is very important for understanding our world. Being and the other, you know, there's there's depending on the framework and the philosophy considered, you can kind of, and then there are obviously other, you know, other dyads like you know, mediation and immediacy and, and Hegel or um, appearance versus appearing and Kant's. Right, you, you can kind of find these things and it's always the dyad that is therefore the, the the kind of the third principle and for him non-philosophy again it kind of privileges like uh you know it's like a transcendental occam's razor where it's um it's it only needs one half principles or one backslash two because it's it's the one autonomous radically autonomous uh any interplay and in its unilaterality and everything being turned away from it and everything being well, say like with philosophy, if philosophy is first, you know, as Descartes said, first philosophy, then it's quote unquote second first, right? Because it's first after the one, which is really the first. <laughs> it, he'll say weird shit like this, but it kind of makes sense if you think about it. Um, but anyway, yeah, so you have the one and then the dyad, right? Which is, you could use different frameworks for it. With Husserl, you'll have the noesis and noema, right? Um, or whatever, whatever, whatever. Whichever di- other dyad you, could, you want to you want to go into, but the, oh, like presentation, representation, right? If you want to you think of like a linguistic model, but um, the one is radically autonomous and it's foreclosed to the dyad, which is unilateralized after it, and that autonomy of language too, by not no longer mixing with the real in its descriptions, no longer codetermining it. You know, he finds for language, and I know he says that I think in the introduction, which I get a little line about how that frees up language to therefore have its own relative autonomy that allows it to flourish for itself and, and, and produce these unprecedented effects that, that are possible once we suspend its sufficiency uh, for determining the real by describing it. So um, there's a simplicity to non-philosophy and, you know, um, and that's, I think, why, again, this comes back to that 
it, uh, that 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 democracy in thought that 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 one of the effects, one of the the happy effects of of, uh, of creating a science of philosophy that can that can really seduce or submit philosophy as a datum and not just as a as a given fact as a you know he'll he'll make that distinction too right that philosophy takes itself as a fact and believes itself to already prove in itself as a fact uh, as a there is philosophy right quote unquote. And Laurel wants to say, no, it has to, it has to, to allow itself to take the status of fact, to earn that right and that status as fact. It has to submit itself as a piece of datum to a science, just like any other object in the world, which is why it's one of the last scientific constants, because there's never been a, a science of philosophy that wasn't always already itself programmed and predetermined philosophically. Does that make sense? Right. That philosophy has always wanted to be its own science, its own therapeutics, mm-hmm. its own evaluation its own arena, its own agonistic combat laudatorial spectacle. And and so the consequence of the science of philosophy is that, like with biology, there is no biological phenomenon that intrinsically has more value than any other at a certain level of abstraction, right? Um, same with like physics, something like that, right? You wouldn't be like, oh, well, gravity is more important than, you know, electromagnetism or something, right? You that's not how science works. It's not the kind of, that's the, that's, that's the, you could say the university of, of science, uh, in, in, in its different local specialties and study effects and, and index different phenomena. There is no intrinsic, uh, value given more to one phenomena over another. And that's the same with, from the perspective of the one after suspending philosophy's decisional antagonism, it's civil warfare. And showing them to all be equal or equivalent in terms of their truth value for the real or just in terms of their, you know, no, no, no philosophical corpuscle, if you want to use that term that I brought up earlier, is better than any other from that point. And so there's a transcendental democracy that's instituted between science and philosophy, but also uh, within diff- the different philosophies themselves and for a moment they can uh, and, or at least from this vision in science or vision one, as they'll say, they can share the space like the members of the happy family without, you know, envy or, or jealousy or ambition even, right? And pretension. Because I, I got a sense that La Ruelle did have like, at least broadly speaking, a sort of anarchistic ethos about his, you know, about his approach, about the approach of, of non-philosophy. I don't know how much of that I'm projecting onto him, but... It feels like maybe like that's the over the sterner overlap is uh mm-hmm. is perhaps that projection. Yeah, I'll, go on. I don't know. I think there's something because Sterner himself is not. He would almost be like a. It's it's hard to pigeonhole him at, right. as far as like where his thought sits if you're trying to like do a taxonomy because he's not really a materialist. Interesting. Not yes. quite. Like he's almost pre. He's almost like a pre-materialist. <laughs> Gotcha. So it's like this ancient, like the pre-Socratic, but he also has so much that is in the post-structuralist realm, I think. Right. Whether it be Derrida or Deleuze, like there are certain avenues you can take. You can explore his work through both both Deleuze and Derrida in particular, but I, yeah, there's a that sort of linguistic presupposing that, which I think, you know, to his credit, you have to kind of credit Hegel for anticipating a certain amount of that too. This is interesting. Which is what what Sterner is picking up on, I think, obviously, as a student of Hegel's and like extending that to its logical conclusion. 
And that's why I've kind of said, I forget who, yeah, who even said it, but Sterner would be the best, the best dialectician among Hegel's students. Right. Right. Like you may not be able to credit him as being as influential as Marx, but as far as being a, a dialectician or a student of Hegel, like he may be the star pupil, <laughs> which yeah, is counterintuitive. No, yeah. no, yeah. And a lot of times the, those best students become radical in their own Right. The, her- the heresy of it. Mm-hmm. And, and I like that too. You bringing that bringing that back up because we talked about that last time. This notion of heresy. speculative heresy, right? Mm-hmm. So, which is I a was, cool term. <laughs> I, yeah, I I've always been partial to it. I, I I do think that yeah, Larwell and anarchism or anarchy. I I you know my first thought was thinking back to British repetition. You know, Billy's talks about like an ontol like an ontological anarchism. Well, he talks about a crown anarchy, right? He's talking about the discord and accord of the, the faculties and, and each faculty taken, uh, going to a certain, taken, taken to a transcendent limit and, and thereby producing a violence and, and the others. And there's this resonance. And, and so there's this crown anarchy of the, the faculties. And that's sort of where learning and thinking occurs. The events of the genitality of, of thought, the, the birth of thought and thought. Um, I mean, with Warwell, I would say it's less. I mean, when we talk about the decisionless chaos, I would say very obviously that that's that's the first place I would go to to this question of anarchy or crowned anarchy. Except I would want to be. You'd obviously have to nuance the term anarchy in a Warwellian vein. Yeah. And I would say, really, it's not an anarchy in the sense of confusion or 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 a sense of. Um, Sort of a ma- massive mixture, as I said earlier, of, of philosophical decisions, like we're just stirring the pot of, mm-hmm. of, a, of a primordial philosophical group and, you know, making a, a Frankenstein of uh, a monster from, from, from Hades, <laughs> uh, whatever. Yeah. How appropriate. That's a good callback yeah. too, I think. Too. <laughs> well, that, yeah. I mean, exactly. And, uh, it's, it's more, at least at this stage for us, and we can revisit this question maybe later as we get deeper into the text, we can keep this close to, we can play that close to the chest, the, the notion of anarchy and, and our well. Yeah. I would say initially at this point, and this kind of kicks us off to the next episode, is what Warwell is first interested in is a kind of abdication in, in the, in the strict sense of philosophy abdicating, stepping down from its kind of it's high horse, it's ivory tower, yeah. it's, or it's throne that it's built for itself, or that it spontaneously uh, erects for itself. Yeah, and 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 therefore, it's almost like a like a decrowned or a non-crowned anarchy. And to, 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 to sort of yeah. modify the lose here because it's precisely the you know the crown is being its, its sort of culmination into a self-justifying, self-legitimizing essence in the in that decisional appropriation of, of the real or predetermination of it and sort of it crowns itself with with being in its descriptions of the real, uh, able to, to sort of modify it and transform it. And and I think that that's for Marwell the it's precisely the suspension. As I said earlier about like kind of stealing its holiest of holies, like it's kind of like stealing its, its crown. Yeah. The crown jewels, which, you know, which, which are spontaneously effectuated by philosophy's very existence, the very 
principle of where there is and that being enough to to get philosophy going down the road of, of you know of crafting this discourse that produces these pronouncements concerning concerning the real concerning truth and essence and all these things and and it's not that it doesn't work right it is a it's a beautiful machine and Lala will say this it's just that it's it's just that the machine is predetermined the effects <laughs> yeah. it produces the, the the manner in which the decisional elements yeah as cogs animate the machine it is not well suited to allow itself the kind of mutation and metastability to produce unprecedented un- unforeseen effects yeah. and so it works within a certain restricted general economy right and and Marwell almost in a kind of Einsteinian non-Einsteinian way wants to wants to have a theory of philosophy's relativity right in, in that in that sense in which a kind of a general relativity of, of philosophy. Yeah. Um, not not a, not relativity as a philosophical concept, obviously, right? As in the sense of, of, of Einstein's thinking. And if we keep that in mind a little bit, you know, we can we can then talk about like another way Laura Wolf talks about it is is there's a kind of like a gravitational field uh, that philosophy participates in that actually is part and parcel with philosophy, right? That it's just precisely unbeknownst to philosophy that this gravitational field is that the, the, the law of its universal gravitation has never been called into question seriously by philosophy. And it's that inability to sort of escape a kind of terrestrial, all too terrestrial foundation and self bootstrapping, again, to use that term, that it's, it, it's, it's lack of questioning and calling into question its own most inherent interior presuppositions, including its its own sufficiency. Yeah. Specifically its own sufficiency. That 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 that's why now philosophy is not needed in philosophy, but it's not what philosophy needs, right? It's like or, or it's like you know, opposite of that and dark night, right? It's 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 a you know for we for like humans, the philosophy we deserve <laughs> is you know is 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 the is the one we have. I think that's interesting, like in the sense of like the maybe not for the heads like us that are so immersed in it, but like to the layperson, there's a like hierarchy of or like enough philosophy relies so much on the authority of X individual, like right, and it ignores. I think maybe even, you know, you might say like the machinic processes that are, that are contributing to, to these thinkers and, and this, whatever's being communicated. So there's like, and this is why I say there's a certain anarchistic streak to Laruel because I get a sense that maybe that's sort of what he's trying to do is sort of deconstruct that appeal to authority in a sense, but also like realizing very, very adroitly that opposition and negation isn't enough. It's not a sufficient, it's not sufficient. There has to be, there's something, there's a different path that non-philosophy can take that is sort of walking a, a, a middle way, perhaps, or like, I don't know, a different approach. Uh, that's This non-antagonistic approach is one that yields that is still like it's there's a criticism, but there's not a reliance on this model of revolution, the Copernican that that we discussed a little bit. So I think maybe there's, I don't know, there's there's something interesting there, perhaps. 
that we can evaluate, you know, as we go through the book. But yeah, I I, I definitely think that's 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 the next thing to to tackle, and before we're gonna we're definitely gonna hit to next. And as I said, we'll we'll have to as we get deeper and deeper, we'll have to revisit this question of, of anarchy and if there is a kind of anarchy produced in the in the chaos that he the not philosophical chaos yeah. that he proposes for decisions. You know, how we we are to read that and how we, we see it as a as a kind of regulated and rule based anarchy that you know, that that the kind of a, a transcendental anarchy that, that, that yes. this, this right. equivalence that we talked about. Yeah, I like that. I like a transcendental anarchism. Yeah, that's Ooh. that's interesting. Well, we might have to ship post that later. That <laughs> yeah, that's people. cool. For you, dear listeners who have stuck with us to this point <laughs> at the end, we are definitely, as as we said a little bit earlier, we're definitely getting into the, the text uh, in, our, in our next recording. So we're so get ready to to read um, to read the introduction and and chapter one of philosophy and non philosophy so you can you can follow along and and we can we can unpack and exposit some of these some of these passages. We will actually get to the text soon. <laughs> yeah, but we've done we've done a lot of good work I think in in setting the table and at least mm-hmm. getting the terminology and and so forth. right. That's wrapping up today's episode for us. And uh, if you want to find me on Patreon, I'm at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Instagram at unconsciousHH. Twitter at unconsciousHH. But uh, this will be the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Sherry signing off. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is unconscious. Of things, in pure violence without object. This is the typical violence of information. It's violence because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in the block work orange.